Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed civic participant, activist, and believer. In this episode, I talk about the long-awaited Breonna Taylor verdict, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the ramifications for the Supreme Court, the president's push for, quote, a more patriotic education, and finally, Mike Espy and the 2020 campaign for U.S. Senate in Mississippi. But not only that, folks, we've got a special surprise for you. You're actually going to hear, for the first time on Footnotes, another voice besides mine. I'll get to that in a moment, but I think you're going to like it. First, the announcements. My favorite part of the podcast, because I get to hear from you directly, the reviews. So I always give the stats and the statistics. We are at 358 reviews, which is up from 340 last episode. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to write out these thoughtful reviews. And the one I'm reading this week, I really appreciate because this person, I think, just gets me. I don't know how they put all of this information together, but it is some of the thoughts. These are some of the thoughts that, that I have had, and they were able to articulate them. So it comes from Dan Weiss, 76, and he says, this is a trustworthy translation The thing I love about Jamar and this podcast is that he could speak several different languages to help listeners process current events. Jamar is unapologetically black, is a historian, has worked in education, grew up evangelical adjacent, attended the University of Notre Dame, and currently lives in the Deep South. That experience has given him the ability to see things from a wide variety of perspectives and to translate them into the language of a multitude of listeners. I learned so much as I listened to Jamar break down the news because he speaks my language, but also he speaks to other audiences with broad perspectives. Dan, I don't know where you're getting your information, but this is a a, a pretty uncannily spot on analysis, uh, right down to kind of the adjectives that you use. Uh, Unapologetically Black. Thank you. I'm striving to be that because God made me this way. I'm proud of it. And uh, we don't need to apologize for our Blackness. He knows that my first career was in education. I don't know. I don't often mention it. I think longtime listeners probably know this by now, but I began as a middle school teacher and then later a principal. And that was sort of my first uh, job out of college for almost 10 years. Grew up evangelical adjacent. Get it right. He got that right. Evangelical adjacent. That's the language I've used in the past several months because I am familiar with white evangelicalism, but I've always been in but not of, mainly because of race. Uh, Of course, mentions Notre Dame, go Irish. And not only did Dan mention I live in the South, but he said the Deep South. So that's right. One author called where I live in the Delta, the most Southern place on earth. So again, Dan, I don't know where you're getting your information, but I appreciate it. And and it wasn't just these factoids. You put it together to say that I can speak many different languages in terms of like cultural languages. I think so in terms of, you know, God has crafted our stories and, and the way that God crafted my story is to have these very diverse experiences that, you know, on our own, we probably wouldn't think we would juxtapose, but but here we are. And I hope it's given me insight into a lot of different subcultures. So very, very much appreciate that thoughtful review, Dan. Now, 
I do have to apologize yet again <laughs> for uh, footnotes in terms of the irregularity. So the last episode was like the first one in like two months, <laughs> um, all summer long. There were a lot of reasons for that. But even this one, it's been over a month. And I, I'm trying to get my act together, y'all. Um, I am trying to do this as consistently as possible. A, there's so much news happening constantly. B, um, the demands on my time wearing a lot of different hats from the witness to writing a dissertation to writing uh, my next book and all of that stuff that comes with it. It's just been hard to juggle it all. But I'm not going to present a problem without presenting a potential solution. So I mentioned before, you're going to hear another voice on this podcast. And you have heard me mention her before. She is one of the people who helps put this show together. She does a lot of the background research to bring the information to you that I, that I present on the show as I offer commentary. But without further ado, we are introducing Christina Button as a sort of co-host. She is going to be presenting you the news topics giving you the facts, and then she's going to be kicking it to me to sort of provide uh, commentary and sort of op-ed insight to it. But Christina Button, welcome to Footnotes. Thank you, Jamar. I'm so excited to be here. We're thrilled for you to be here. Um, Christina, you're not new to The Witness. Can you tell us about how you came across The Witness and what your involvement has been like since then? Um, my involvement in coming to um, The Witness started around the time of the last ele election, um, just sort of seeking a place of people with common ground like myself, um, kind of was one of those people out in the wilderness and just really seeking community and was unable to find that community in person. So I was seeking that online and I've been so blessed by the ministry of the witness and just um, have experienced so much healing, um, just being a part of the, of the online community. So yeah. And I am an admin in the Past the Mic group, and um, I came on board. That one's on Facebook, notes. right? Yep. Admin on uh, Past the Mic on Facebook. Um, and there is also a Past the Mic 101 group for uh, our white siblings as well. So, yeah. And I came on to Footnotes uh, last spring, early summer last year. And as you mentioned, Jamar, um, just kind of doing background research for footnotes. So, yeah. Besides me asking you to do it, what made you willing or interested in serving footnotes? Um, as I mentioned um, a few minutes ago, I've just been so blessed by your ministry um, and The Witness. And I have always been looking for opportunities to serve and just sort of give back. Because um, as I mentioned, I just being a part of the community and um, just the content that The Witness has put out over the last four to five years um, has been restorative to me. So I just, I just felt um, led and called to uh, look for opportunities to 
continue to further the ministry that is the witness. Well, we are indebted to you. Let me tell y'all, Facebook moderation, (laughs) if you've ever read the comments on any of your own posts, right? Especially if you're talking about race and religion, it is a dumpster fire. And Christina is one of the ones who goes in there and either puts out the fires or prevents them from starting in the first place. So it's not a fun job. She sees the good, the bad, and the ugly of all those Facebook comments, but is um, instrumental in making it a safer place for Black people and other people of color to come speak honestly and have a sense of community online, which is super important in these pandemic times. So thank you for that. And then, of course, thank you for your service to footnotes in particular. And uh, we're going to get into the news in a second, but I just thought of this, y'all. I'm putting the call out there. Do you know what an audiogram is, Christina? I do not. So I, I think I'm using the right term, but basically it is a static picture for on social media, but you hear the audio. It's usually an audio clip of mm-hmm. um, a podcast. We need somebody out there, a listener, to volunteer to do audiograms. I don't know anything about it, um, what software you need, how much it would cost. Uh, Obviously, we could support um, any of those uh, software costs. But somebody who had the time to listen to footnotes, pick out one or two or three, you know, good sections that are intriguing, um, good sound bites anywhere from 30 minutes to like two minutes that can fit on, you know, either Instagram or Twitter and make that into an audiogram. If that's you, please let us know. Email us mm-hmm. at footnotespod1. That's footnotespod and the number one at gmail.com. And we're looking for a, a volunteer to do audiogram. I just thought of that. I don't know if it'll work, but it's another great way to spread the news. So that's all I've got. Christina, here you go. All right. Um, This week we are talking about disappointing but not surprising news with the Breonna Taylor verdict. This week, it was announced a grand jury didn't charge any officers with killing Breonna Taylor in her apartment as she slept. A former detective was indicted on three counts of wanton endangerment. Who was Breonna Taylor? She was a young African-American woman of 26 years old. She was an emergency room tech with so much more life to live. Police, during a botched raid, raided her home in the middle of the night on March 13th as she slept in her bed with her boyfriend, Kevin Walker. When the police punched in the door with a battering ram, Mr. Walker, fearful of an intruder, reached for his gun and let off one shot, wounding an officer in the thigh. He and another officer returned fire while a third began blindly shooting through Breonna Taylor's window and patio door. Bullets ripped through nearly every room in her apartment, then into two adjoining ones. Under Kentucky law, a person who commits that crime when he or she wantonly engages in conduct, which creates a substantial danger of death or serious physical injury, to another person or reckless endangerment. The charge is on the basis 
of the shots that were fired into the adjacent apartments, endangering other people who occupied them. The crime is a class D felony, which means it can carry a sentence of up to five years in prison. The officer charge was set to $15,000 bond this past Wednesday. Say her name. Oh, Jamar, what do you, um, what do you think about this verdict? (laughs) I have all the thoughts. Actually, when it first came out, this is, this is strange for me because I am on social media way too much, but I watched the new Netflix documentary on social media about Mm -hmm. social media. I can't remember the title right now, but y'all will know it when, when you see it. It is chilling. It is absolutely frightening. I say that because what ended up happening is I deleted the Twitter app from my phone. And um, that was for multiple reasons. One, the iOS update has my apps acting glitchy, but I deleted it. And then I decided to leave it off because of what I saw on that social media thing. I didn't want, especially as we head into the last weeks before the November election, to, to be so inundated by social media that, that it stressed me out. So I was just like, let me leave it off, mm-hmm. which meant when the Breonna Taylor verdict came down, I wasn't on Twitter for like breaking news as I typically am in these cases. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's sort of a blessing and a curse of social media because mm-hmm. you get to, to rapidly download all, all the hot takes, right? And, and for me, it's a blessing because it kind of helps me get different perspectives and then formulate my own opinion on something. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the curse is you get all these different opinions, right? And you you get angry and and frustrated. So, so when this came down, I was in a little bit, I was, I felt a little bit more detached from the breaking news, but certainly emotionally attached to the case as are most black people. But I got to say, I was just like, I won't say numb, but it was such a mix of feelings that it's hard to, pull out one particular one that I felt. And so it, it, it has taken me a while. But the thing that has stuck with me in the days since the verdict is something that may be unexpected for people. It, hearing this verdict made me think of a young black girl named Latasha Harlins. Does that name ring a bell to you? Yes, it does. Yeah. So Folks old enough to remember will recall that Latasha Harlins was a 15-year-old black girl who was shot and killed in Los Angeles just 13 days after Rodney King was brutally beaten by the Los Angeles Police Department. And um, her story is tragic. The the store clerk owner where she was Mm -hmm. thought that she was stealing a bottle of orange juice. Latasha had a backpack Mm -hmm. on backpack on she put it in the backpack but she had the money in her hand so she had just it it appears she had just put the orange juice in her backpack so she would have her hands free and was going up Mm -hmm. to pay but the store owner who happened to be korean that was some of the racial tension there um Mm -hmm. she accused latasha of stealing they got into an altercation when the store clerk grabbed latasha's sweater and tried to pull her backpack off latasha pulled away and just starts walking away but at that point, the, gun, the, the store clerk owner reaches under the counter, pulls out a gun, and shoots Latasha in the back of the head from three feet away. She died instantly. Mm-hmm. So as if that wasn't tragedy enough, as is often the case and as is the case with Breonna Taylor, it was the sentencing that also caused outrage. 
So the case went to court. Uh, the store clerk owner was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and had a jury recommend several years in prison as a result. But the judge came back with a different sentence, which amounted to time served. Um, maybe there was a fine, and then there were some hours of community service. And that's it. Wow. That was the consequence for taking this young black girl's life. And it reminded me of the Breonna Taylor case because A, they should both be alive. Uh, they did nothing to, to warrant any sort of physical violence, let alone death. And then B, the consequence that came down is so light as to be insulting, right? Mm -hmm. And when we look at Breonna Taylor's case, when you really think about it, a wall had more legal rights than Breonna Taylor did. Right. So, you know, from what I understand, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but be, they're basically arguing that because Breonna Taylor's boyfriend shot that the, the police were within their legal rights to fire back, even though, you know, this is for all they know, Breonna and her boyfriend, for all they know, this is a home invasion. He legally owns a gun, and under right. the, the Castle Act, you are entitled to protect your home. Uh, but apparently that didn't come into play in this case, or at least not persuasively enough. That's part of the issue is that a lot of this process is opaque. We don't know what was actually presented to the folks making these decisions, right? Um, and, and the charges that did come down were three charges for wanton endangerment because there was a third officer who went around to a window and just blindly fired in it. And I think some of those stray bullets hit another apartment. So there were three people in that other apartment, a, a pregnant woman, uh, her husband or boyfriend, and their child. So there was one count for each of those people. So there's basically like the only charge that came down were for the bullets that might have hit other people and not for the bullets that actually hit and killed Breonna Taylor, which is absolutely mind-boggling. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So those were my initial thoughts that that connection to Latasha Harlins and what amounts to, you know, the potential for hurting and killing someone outweighing the actual hurting and killing of people. But I'm grateful for the timing of you joining us, Christina, this week, because as a black Christian woman, I think you're, you're going to have some of the most important and, um, you know, experiential insights to share on this topic. So is there anything you wanted to add in light of this tale, in, in light of this verdict? Yeah. Um, this verdict, um, feels so chilling. Um, you know, I, I sat and I asked the question, like, you know, what was the point of the, that press conference? Um, what hmm. justice has hmm. Brianna received since, you know, six months ago or two, two weeks ago for that matter? Um, I think one of the most, uh, painful elements that, um, I didn't mention in, in the intro for this is just, um, the um, attorney general, Dan Daniel Cameron, who, who is a black man himself. Yeah. Um, you know, just, just, you know, we already struggle and strive to, uh, have our white brothers and sisters see us you know, see us, see that we are made in the image of God, just like you. But 
um, to see um, someone who who is of your people group to not share the same urgency um, to to find to seek justice for Brianna. So I think that that's a, um, an additional nuance element to this case. Um, you know, in addition to others that we've seen play out. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, all the mixed emotions, all the feeling numb, feeling the rage, feeling the anger, feeling um, just a sense of hopelessness, but in the midst, still persisting because what other choice do we have but to persist? Um in the name of survival, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it, I'm glad you brought up um, the attorney general who is black and Republican mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I put out a tweet not long after the verdict that said white supremacy always requires the complicity of black people and other people of color to maintain Most it. definitely. So, you know, I, again, all the legal ins and outs we can talk about, but right. don't think for a moment that um, mm -hmm. Republicans, white Republicans were not very cognizant of the fact that they had a black attorney general who was Republican, who could say all of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of white folks think that if they get a black person to parrot their beliefs, and they're saying mm -hmm. talking points, which can be completely anti-black or vehemently opposed to black uplift, then mm -hmm. it gives them cover or sanction because it's like, see, a black person said mm -hmm. it, so it can't be racist, right. it can't be wrong. No, 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 no. White, white supremacy always re relies on complicity from the oppressed. And there are always right. a small group of oppressed people, right. black and brown folks who are, are willing to play that role. Um, so, so yeah, that's just another element another layer to this entire thing it's far from over but brianna taylor we say your name last week on september 18th we lost supreme court justice ruth bader ginsburg she became the second female justice of the u.s supreme court in 1993. She served as the director of Women's Rights Project of the American Civil Liberties Union during the 1970s. Appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for District of Columbia in 1980 and named by President Bill Clinton in 1993. She continued to argue for gender equality through the remainder of her life. May she rest in peace. To know what the passing of a Supreme Court opens up a seat for someone else to be nominated. And within 24 hours, if not less, there were statements being released by both President Donald J. Trump and Senate Majority House Leader Mitch McConnell. They urged how critical it was to nominate someone before the election, which is 42 days away. Here's a quote from Mitch McConnell's statement on the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In the last midterm election before Just Justice Scalia's death in 2016, Americans elected Republican Senate majority because we pledged to check and balance the last days of a lame duck president's second term, 
We kept our promise. Since the 1880s, no Senate has confirmed an opposite party president Supreme Court nominee in a presidential election year. By contrast, American reelected our majority in 2016 and expanded it in 2018 because we pledged to work with President Trump and, and support his agendas, particularly his outstanding appointments to the federal judiciary. Once again, we will keep our promise. President Trump's nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate, end quote. Yet something happened in 2016 when Obama nominated Merrick Garland to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court due to the passing of Justice Scalia. But within hours of President Obama naming Merrick Garland, Senate Majority House leader Mitch McConnell declared any appointment will be null and void. He stated the next president should be chosen by the incoming president after the election had occurred. Jamar, what inconsistency are we seeing here with these very similar situations? Okay, so there's a whole lot of politics going on. Let's let's mm-hmm. talk first just about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, the timing and its significance. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, mm-hmm. Ru- Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's a little bit unusual in that she was kind of a cultural icon by the time she mm-hmm. died, which is not typical for a Supreme Court justice. Um, you probably know her by her nickname, the Notorious RBG. Uh, you've probably seen some clips of her working out, you know, this this fierce woman in her, her twilight years still maintaining a vigorous pace and healthy uh, lifestyle. Uh, but beyond that, she was one of the court's more liberal justices. And so her passing means that the court skews more conservative, which is going to have ramifications on all kinds of important issues from immigration to abortion and on and on and on. So so there's that. And it's coming, as you mentioned, <laughs> just before the presidential election. And so there's all kinds of issues there. But let me just say this. On the day that she died, I put out a tweet and I quoted Martin Luther King Jr. And I I said from MLK, it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. And when I put that out, I was mainly thinking of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's decisions on uh, promoting women's rights and advocacy. But it was so interesting. It got retweeted over 400 times, but a lot of the comments came from conservative Christians who were basically Mm -hmm. calling her a baby killer, right? Because of her support of Roe v. Wade. And Mm -hmm. we've talked about this again and again and again, but that is the, (laughs) pun intended, trump card for a Mm -hmm. lot of theologically and socially conservative Christians. And they're one issue voters. And if anyone supports Roe v. Wade, which is not necessarily synonymous with support of abortion, right? then right. it's off limits, right? So you can't even say anything positive about Ruth Bader Ginsburg or any justice or any politician mm-hmm. who, who is not trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. And we, there's a long history there. We can talk about why Republican presidents, even when they have a majority in both the House and the Senate, have failed to or, or, or have not um, taken the initiative to overturn Roe v. Wade and all of that stuff. But again... It's just so interesting, even in the shadow of her death, just like totally discrediting her based on this one policy position, which, by the way, <laughs> after Billy Graham passed, and I, I, 
I think I waited some time. But anyway, after Billy Graham died, I mentioned because I saw a lot of people sort of lionizing him for his racial mm -hmm. record. I'm like, right. uh, uh, you know, yeah. he's probably a moderate, right? And I just got excoriated mm -hmm. by people because they're like, well, you're, you're, you're desecrating the dead. Why don't you let him rest in peace and all that? Obviously, the same's not going for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So that one level, let me give just one more level. We talked about the inconsistencies and the hypocrisy. Of course, mm -hmm. the Republicans led by Mitch McConnell would not let Merrick Garland, a, uh, a more liberal leaning uh, justice, mm -hmm. even get proposed, even, even get to a vote for the Supreme Court in Obama's last year. And that was nine months before the election. This is coming mm -hmm. less than two months yep. before mm -hmm. the presidential election. And they are using diametrically opposed rationales for why it was okay to block Merrick Garland, but it's okay mm -hmm. to allow a right. Republican nominee. And I thought there was one particular person um, who put this really, really well. And this is Kirsten Powers, who has a really interesting political story by herself, but it's a USA Today article entitled Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and the Republican Party play victims. Don't let them. Mm -hmm. And I just want to read you the first paragraph. It says, few would disagree with the contention that Washington has reached new heights of dysfunction in recent years. It's tempting to blame, quote, both sides for this problem, but it would be inaccurate. It's true that as individuals, we all need to look at how we can help turn the heat down around politics, especially as they interfere with family and friend relationships at a much higher rate than in the past. It's also true that politi politicians in both Democratic and Republican parties can be raging hypocrites so much that it barely shocks us anymore. So that caveat is there. But then she goes into the, this. She says, nonetheless, it's not correct that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party as institutions are contributing to the problems this country faces in equal measure. What the Republicans are doing and have been doing for some time is asymmetrical warfare. I loved that intro from Kirsten Powers because she gets at something that I've been railing against for years, which is the idea of false equivalencies, especially in mm -hmm. politics and when we're mm -hmm. talking about the two parties, Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. So we have four, and by we, I mean evangelical and evangelical adjacent Christians, have been conditioned for such a long time that either to be Christian is to be Republican or to be Christian means you can't take any side, you can't pick any party in an election, and there's somehow some supernatural, noble, holy position to take that doesn't you know, sort of get into the dirt of politics, right? Well, black people have never had that luxury because politics affects our everyday existence. Um, it's also not sinful to be partisan in the sense of picking a party that you support. I don't think we should think that, uh, you know, somebody picking the Democrats or picking the Republican Party at a, at a national, state or local level means they co-sign absolutely everything the party does or even absolutely everything that individual does. It means that we are in basically a two-party system. And if you want to vote, you're going to vote for someone. And that's OK, as long as we don't identify that party as the Christian party. Right. But. Right. What Kirsten Powers is getting at and what we are seeing playing out in this Supreme Court deal 
is that the two sides aren't playing by the same rules. Mm. And that's where we need to avoid false equivalencies. What the Republicans are doing with the Supreme Court right now could not be any clearer case of hypocrisy and inconsistency. Mm-hmm. Because before they were saying nine months before the election is too soon to right. propose an, another Supreme Court justice, which is for a lifetime appointment. Now they're saying that six weeks before the election is plenty of time to do that. And some Republicans right. want to push forth a vote before the November 3rd election, and they're hoping it turns out more Republicans, right? So mm-hmm. clearly, right, the, the norms that had been established and even norms that had been established or, or, or renormed by the Republicans uh, just four years ago, they're kicking those out the door in a very partisan, obvious attempt to, to pack the Supreme Court with conservative justices. So my main point here, A, know what's happening, know what's going on. These justices are a big deal, lifetime appointments, highest court in the land, and it's been happening at the district level and, and local levels too, where all of these conservative justices are, are getting nominated for a long, long time uh, in, and in position for a long, long time. And then two, understand that the rules of engagement are not identical in each party. And like the article said, that um, the Republican Party is uh, waging asymmetrical warfare. And so I think it's just going to be interesting to see how Republicans on Capitol Hill respond to this and uh, how Christians, too, respond to it as well. So big things happening at the Supreme Court level. Trump calls for a more patriotic education in schools. President Donald J. Trump made a speech at the National Archives last Thursday, September 17, stating that he would establish a national commission that will honor the founding of America and promote patriotic education. He wants to highlight the founding of America as being 1776, which he states was rooted in independence. He stated that the 1619 project promotes an inaccurate version of U.S. history by overemphasizing race and the legacy of slavery. He states, and I quote, whether it is the mob on the street or the cancel culture in the boardroom, the goal is the same, to silence dissent, to scare you out of speaking the truth, and to bully Americans into abandoning their values, their heritage, and their very way of life. The left has warped, distorted, and defiled the American story with deceptions, falsehood, and lies. There's no better example than the New York Times totally discredited 1619 Project. The narratives about America being pushed by the far left and being chanted in the streets bear a striking resemblance to the anti-American propaganda of our adversaries because both groups want to see American weaken derided and totally diminish. Students in our universities are inundated with critical race theory. This is a Marxist document holding that America is a wicked and racist nation, that even young children are complicit in oppression, and that our entire society must be radically transformed. Um, I just wanted to name and offer a little background on the 1619 Project from the creator Nicole Hannah-Jones. 
She made a statement on Twitter and I quote, the framing of the 1619 project remains the same today as when we published in 2019. We acknowledge 1776 as this nation's official founding, but ask readers to imagine what it would mean to consider 1619 as our birth year. That text hasn't changed. The tweet that prompted this contrived controversy was in response to Trump saying he needed 1776 commission so children will continue to be taught 1776 is our founding. I was saying, of course, children will be taught 1776 is our official birth year, as we don't argue otherwise. We do argue 1619 is our symbolic founding because so much of the what would make America its culture, its divisions, its wealth, its legal political systems would begin at that moment. This was clear to anyone who read it, heard me speak or read my tweets in the context. When President Obama called Congressman John Lewis a founding father, he did not mean Lewis literally helped found this country during the revolutionary period. He is using metaphor as a rhetorical device to say Lewis helped perfect those founding ideas. And those who want to argue that the focus on 1619 as a foundational year to our country is radical and absurd merely need to look at what happened yesterday. The America that justified the death of Breonna Taylor did not begin in 1776. It began in 1619, end quote. Jamar, this is a lot. <laughs> what are your thoughts on some, some of the things he mentioned about um, the 1619 Project? Uh, he cites critical race theory, which we first saw in the church, and now we have um, the, the president sort of um, reinforcing it. And what will this mean for schools if this really does come to fruition? And I'll note it, it already has um, taken place in the past. Uh, as a historian, I am pulling out my hair. I mean, like the Bible talks about sackcloth and ashes, pulling out your beard, mm-hmm. all of the stuff that goes with it. It, it. it is agonizing to see this unfolding and on multiple levels. One. The critical race theory boogeyman, as I call it. Mm-hmm. Like you said, we saw this in the church. I saw this emerging probably in 2015, 2016, among some far right fundamentalist Christian nationalist folks, mostly white, but understand this spans the racial and ethnic spectrum. And they basically have called critical race theory for several years now, quote, the greatest threat to Christianity, which mm-hmm. is laughable. Uh, Because number one, this is the label they foisted upon us. You weren't using that label, Christina. I wasn't using it. The people they're talking about, we didn't bring this up. They brought it up. They they found some themes or something that, that they thought were troublesome. And they said, oh, reminds me of this thing, which I've I'm not an expert in, but uh, yeah, that's what they're doing. They're critical race theory. And they made it into this epithet. They made it into this libelous kind of statement, right? And and so we saw that emerging in Christian circles. And then probably uh, it would be an interesting master's thesis or project to, to, to trace this path. But I'm guessing the leap to the White House wasn't that far because of, you know, the so-called 
court evangelicals, the, the evangelical advisory council that Trump has, um, who, who represent, you know, sort of the furthest right, right, most conservative, tend to be xenophobic, all of these things, kind of Christians. Uh, I'm sure that they'd heard about it in their churches or, or online and then whispered in the president's ear. And then all of a sudden, critical race theory and white privilege and all of that stuff has to be quashed. Mm. And then the evolution or de-evolution of that fear mongering is, is the curricula in schools, which, by the way, states determine the curricula, not the federal government. So mm-hmm. it doesn't even it doesn't even have teeth in that sense. But um, it manifests in you know, the president and his supporters calling the attempt to have a more robust accounting of U.S. history uh, left-wing indoctrination is basically what they're calling it. And Mm -hmm. what they want to put instead, and and by that, we're talking about the history of racism. And again, I'm pulling out my hair because I wrote a whole book on this. The color of compromise, right? Because we don't know enough of that history. And I can't even count how many people who have contacted me on Twitter, DM, email, whatever it might be, saying these exact words, I never knew. I never knew. Mm -hmm. And so now the solution from the White House is to further distance itself from that history, to further cover it up so that more and more people and a whole other generation will never know. And that's by design. It's always been by design because by a patriotic education, what this White House means is the great man story. And I do mean man because it is mostly about dead white men who came before us, the so-called founding fathers and the so-called victorious, triumphant founding of this great democratic experiment. Now, don't get me wrong. We have... You know, this is a very incredible country in a lot of ways, um, mm-hmm. but it's never lived up to the words on paper about what this country mm-hmm. is supposed to be and what a quote unquote patriotic education means in this instance is to tell all of the stories of supposed victory from the perspective of the victors who tend to be white right. people, white wealthy yeah. people, white wealthy male people to the exclusion of the perspectives and the impact on marginalized and oppressed people groups from Native Americans to women, to people of African descent, to recent immigrants, all of those groups are sort of left out of the narrative and the hypocrisy, the egregious moral failings such as enslaving human beings are left out or glossed over as unimportant. And all the 1619 Project is trying to do, also many of us are trying to do, is say there's more to the story. There may be good things that are true, but that's not all. There's more to the story. So we're trying to add to the story and avoid the danger of having this singular, myopic, narrow narrative Mm -hmm. of the United States as this unassailably great and virtuous nation. So from a factual data, historical perspective, it's the absolute wrong thing to do. And from a propaganda perspective, mm-hmm. America doesn't need any more pride in itself. We need some humility uh, to recognize right. our shortcomings. So yeah, I'm pretty fired up about this supposedly more patriotic education in schools. 
Mike Espy could be the first black senator from Mississippi since Reconstruction. We have another important election in Mississippi between Mississippi Democrat Mike Espy and Republican Cindy Hyde-Smith. Mike Espy could be the first black senator to be elected for Senate in the state of Mississippi since 1881. I just want to note briefly the previous African-American whose names were Hiram Revels, who served as a Mississippi senator in 1870, and five years later, Blanche K. Bruce was elected by the Mississippi legislator in 1874. I just want to note to date that there have been 10 senators who are African-American who have served in the United States Senate since 1870. 10. In the last 150 years, Mike Espy would be the 11th African-American senator if elected in November 2020 and the third in the state of Mississippi. Mike Espy is running against Cindy Hyde-Smith, Cindy Hyde-Smith, back in 2018 at a campaign stop, less than 100 miles from the site of one of the nation's most violent lynchings, the murder of Emmett Till, said, if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. And she was referring to a man named Colin Hutchinson, a cattle rancher who was supporting her campaign. Wow. Jamar, how (laughs) pivotal is this election for the state of Mississippi, given the historical and current climate? Yes. Well, just to put in perspective, right, Cindy Hyde-Smith said this about being in the front row at a hanging in Mississippi, which has the highest number of recorded lynchings Mm -hmm. in the nation and has the highest proportion of Black residents of any state. She said this and she still won which was uh, mind-boggling, not really if you know U.S. history, but still leaves you reeling. Uh, Mike Espy is, you know, the significance of this, you know, it's been since Reconstruction, since Mm -hmm. the state of Mississippi has had a black senator. But what I think is so important is that many people write off southern states, such as Mississippi, as, as irredeemably red. It's Republican Mm -hmm. through and through. You're never going to crack that nut. And so that means the sort of Democratic apparatus at the national level doesn't invest much in supporting Democratic candidates in Mississippi because they think they'll they'll always lose, basically. Um, But here we have a senator who has a very good chance of making a good run against the Republican opponent. And with the proper support, especially in the last month, leading up to the election, maybe, maybe could pull it off. Now there's voter suppression, there's gaps in funding, there's the entrenched history of Mississippi. All of that stands in the way, but it has been a long time since there has been a black candidate for U.S. Senate in Mississippi who has been this close. He ran in 2018 against her and, and was very close at that point. And I think now because of we've seen more of this administration and more of what the Republican Party stands for, he may be even closer in this one. So the only reason I wanted to bring this up in this episode of Footnotes is to tell folks not to write off the political races in Mississippi, especially for Senate, which is going to be so, so important in in the federal government, especially if there's an issue, some sort of issue with the election. Right. And, And figuring out a transfer of power. If, if uh, Democrats get the Senate, it becomes a very different game. And you may have written off Mississippi as 
hopelessly Republican. Nobody could ever right. beat them. But here we have a credible challenger. And so donate to his campaign if you want to support that way. Spread the word on social media if, if you want to support that way. But pay attention. Mississippi and the South in general are not what you think politically. And this could be a pivotal year. So pay attention. That's it for this week. Remember to support The Witness Foundation. Visit thewitnessfoundation.co and help us fund and equip the next generation of Black Christian racial justice leaders. Like my author page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby one. That's facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby and the number one. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, both at Jamar Tisby and follow Christina at Black Women Plant Seeds, at Black Women Plant Seeds on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember, you can also contact us via email at footnotespod1 at gmail.com, footnotespod in the number one at gmail. Thanks to our co-host, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness Podcast Suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby. And Christina Button. And this is Footnotes.